Welcome to Dose Nation. I am James Kent, and this is the first episode of our 2022 season, entitled Brave New World. And wow, how things are changing in the psychedelic culture. So fast, it's hard to keep up these days. For those of you familiar with the podcast, you may be wondering where Hilla and Ty Miller are. And they will be back for at least a few episodes later this season, but for this episode, it's just me because I'm going to do a prelude for this season, catching everybody up on where we left off and where we're going. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the show, I am James Kent. I am a writer and a programmer. I have been in the psychedelic scene since about 1993, when I decided it would be my goal to go out and meet as many psychedelic luminaries as possible, starting with Terrence McKenna, who was at the top of the food chain at that time. I chronicle that story in the 10-episode series called The Dark Side of Psychedelics, which came out a few years back. And in addition to covering my history and my path through the psychedelic field, it also chronicles what I consider to be some of the biggest psychedelic casualties and victims of psychedelic misadventure that go largely ignored, unsung, and forgotten in psychedelic lore. Now, if you were a fan of the Dark Side of Psychedelic series, there may be more of that kind of thing in this new season, but it's not going to be solely Dark Side. We are going to be taking a look at the entire range of psychedelic culture, from the emerging corporate scene to the ongoing underground scene to everything in between. I will be doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with people you may know and people you may not have heard of, because so much of the chatter in the psychedelic community centers around this one specific bubble of major players, and there's probably less than 20 of them in the world, and if you follow the psychedelic scene, you can probably name them, because they are on all of the other podcasts all the time, and I think we've pretty much heard everything that these particular individuals have to say. So finding fresh voices and fresh perspectives in a scene that's inundated with people repeating the same bullet points over and over in every interview and every news story is sometimes difficult and it takes a little bit of digging and sometimes a little bit of luck to find the people who have these alternative viewpoints and beyond that are willing to publicly share them because as we will discuss as a running theme, there is some infighting in the psychedelic community. And that's something that should really be addressed. It's not that the psychedelic community is alone in this fact. Many communities have infighting amongst uh, members and ad hoc members of the community. And this infighting usually comes down to something as simple as messaging. Because for the most part, people in the psychedelic culture, and the scene, and the community, we all agree that psychedelics should be decriminalized. People should be free to explore these substances as they wish, and they should not be penalized or put in jail or ostracized for their desire to experiment with their own mind. I also think the vast majority of people in the community believe that these substances should be available for medical use, for use in therapy, 
to treat things like depression and PTSD and anxiety and OCD and eating disorders and other mood and behavior disorders that have been historically very difficult to treat. I think everyone agrees on that, or at least most people agree on that. And that's not where the infighting happens. The infighting happens over specific issues like, is it okay to call psychedelics a miracle cure as a way of branding them for therapeutic use? Is it okay to minimize the instances of sexual abuse and power misuse in the psychedelic therapy scene in order of serving the larger goal of mainstreaming psychedelics for therapeutic use? And is it proper or beneficial for us to keep lauding the same psychedelic pioneers over and over into the future, even though some of these people were deeply flawed and had beliefs and behaviors that some might find extremely problematic today? Plus, there's a whole messy set of issues related to who benefits from the mainstreaming of psychedelics. Is it just major corporations? Do any of the people who have pushed forward psychedelic advocacy for the last 30 years actually see any of the benefits from this? Do any of the indigenous peoples who practiced traditional medicine and developed very complex rituals and systems of use around these plants, do they get to see any of the benefits of the mainstreaming of psychedelics? And what about the rest of society? The people who aren't, aren't really even casually interested in psychedelics, who maybe don't even know what psychedelics are. Do normal people benefit from the mainstreaming of psychedelics? Or is this just a special interest issue for people who enjoy psychedelics or fetishize the psychedelic mind state? These are issues, people. These are deep, deep issues, and they are bubbling within the core of our community. Now, I should point out that um, the Symposia people, the Symposia crew, Dave Nichols, Lily K. Ross, and their team have been covering these issues for a while now. And the New York Magazine podcast cover story features Power Trip, produced by Dave Nichols and Lily K. Ross, discussing how the psychedelic community deals with instances of therapeutic abuse or sexual misconduct within a therapeutic setting. And that is a very interesting listen. I would suggest if you have not listened to those episodes, you should listen to New York Magazine's Cover Story podcast and get caught up on everything that's going on with that story. Because as it's mentioned in one of the episodes, I was one of the first people to catch wind of the abuses being alleged within the psychedelic therapy community fostered by Françoise Borzat and Aharon Grossberg around the uh, CIIS School of Integral Studies. And that is specifically because of the Dark Side of Psychedelic podcast series talking about the darker issues related to the psychedelic scene. After those podcasts were released, I was contacted by many people who had not only had tragic negative reactions to psychedelic experiences, but also found themselves in difficult power dynamics with a shaman, a friend, a guru, a therapist, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or a partner, somebody who had gotten involved in psychedelics and had somehow crossed a boundary that turned dark or traumatic or abusive. 
or deadly in some cases. And between the release of those episodes and the launch of a public service like the Fireside Project, which is a telephone number and website that people can go to specifically for help with challenging trips or problematic behaviors in the community, I was fielding a lot of these inbound requests for help because there was nobody else in the psychedelic scene discussing these issues. And it's just as Lily K. Ross says in the cover story, Power Trip Psychedelic Podcast Series, once you reveal the fact that there is abuse or there are negative consequences to some psychedelic exploration, suddenly the floodgates open and people want to share their experiences with you. Because honestly, when people have a negative experience in the psychedelic community and they go online looking for help, they will often get run out of psychedelic chat rooms. And there is a shameful strategy of victim blaming in the psychedelic community because one of the overarching talking points that informs the entire field is psychedelics are completely harmless, they're beneficial, they're therapeutic, they're spiritual medicines. And how can those be harmful? In order to preserve the reputation of the plants and substances, when bad things do happen to people using psychedelics, the initial instinct is to blame the victim and say, you were doing it wrong, or you took too much, or you took it in the wrong setting, or you trusted the wrong people, right? Your therapist abused you, your shaman abused you, your boyfriend abused you, well, you trusted the wrong people to take psychedelics with, so it's your fault. And I'm sorry, that's just not good enough. That is not a strategy that can last. It's not sustainable. Victim blaming is not sustainable. And people will eventually begin to see through this. And not only see through the fact that victim blaming is not sustainable and it's not helpful, and it is also traumatizing to the people trying to find help, but it illustrates a kind of casual narcissism in that psychedelics can do no wrong. And as long as I hold that belief and hold that faith, I am in the right. And when confronted by somebody who has a counter opinion, the knee-jerk reaction will always be to shout those people down because it is injurious to the standpoint of narcissistic superiority to accept the fact that somebody else's viewpoint may be valid if it challenges one of your deepest beliefs. And this is where the issues become nuanced, because there is a very strong legacy of psychedelic superiority within the community, or the belief that people who take psychedelics are somehow superior to people who don't because they have achieved higher consciousness states, higher mind states, larger depth of wisdom, a deeper perspective, more insights, etc., that other people are missing. And it's this kind of thinking that leads to the casual narcissism that allows a person who probably is very well-intentioned to then shout down somebody in a chat room or a Twitter thread for saying, but wait, what about my negative experience? It wasn't healing or beautiful, it was traumatic. That experience doesn't fit the narrative, so... It's got to be kicked out. And this is when the belief in psychedelics, psychedelic appreciation, or psychedelic advocacy crosses the line and becomes something like a psychedelic religion. 
where there is only one viewpoint that is correct, and it comes down from on high, and everybody has to repeat the same line, otherwise we jeopardize the whole thing. And Dave Nichols has coined the term psychedelic authoritarianism to discuss issues just like this. Because there is a real divide between the dogma of psychedelic authoritarianism and the reality of psychedelic use and psychedelic therapy, which is messy. Psychedelic authoritarianism claims that psychedelics are sacred and clean and spiritual and free and something angelic and close to godly, whereas the reality is that they're very messy. They're complicated. They expose a lot of buried emotions, repressed anxieties, power imbalances, skewed societal norms, and faulty belief structures, and can leave someone questioning the fundamental nature of their own reality which is not always healing or centering or spiritual, it can be starkly terrifying in a really ontologically horrifying way. A deep existential trauma that the psychedelic community does not talk about. What about the people who come out of the experience with a deep existential trauma? What's the word for those people? How do we deal with that situation? The psychedelic dogma would prefer that we just ignore that and pretend that those don't exist, or that people with HPPD, hallucinogen perceptual persisting disorder, or people with residual psychosis and recurring delusions will just pretend that those people don't exist. Because by and large, most people benefit from them, or so the psychedelic dogma says. And this is where I come in, because I have a slightly different perspective on all of this, and maybe it's because I'm a skeptic. And maybe it's because I have ADHD and I fall somewhere on the autistic spectrum. So things like hype and bullshit don't really work on me. All I see is people's actions and people's behaviors. The position that I've been put in, not by the community, but by my own hand, is someone who draws distinctions and makes clear distinctions between things which are actual and things which are false, or fictional. And when dissecting psychedelic authoritarianism, these distinctions are very necessary. Otherwise, the subject can become extremely confusing very quickly, and people don't even realize that they're becoming confused and mixing the actuality with the fiction. And I'll give you an example from a recent conversation on Twitter where someone was discussing the therapeutic legacy of Salvador Roquette, who was a mentor to... Francoise Brzat and Aharon Grossbard, who carried much of Roquette's training into their own therapeutic practice. Now, for those of you not familiar with the story, Salvador Roquette is famous for inventing a variety of therapeutic techniques which involved using loud music and jarring visuals, pornographic movies, movies of war, startling noises, in order to break down his subjects and cause what's called a psycho-spiritual trauma, which is supposed to shake them out of their learned behaviors and allow the therapist to guide them into a new way of being. And the discussion went back and forth between whether or not these therapeutic practices worked, how much of these therapeutic practices have been integrated into modern psychedelic therapy, and whether or not they were beneficial. And at this point, I had to say... 
what Roquette did was brainwashing. He was using techniques of mind control and brainwashing, where you break down the ego, you flatten the person's identity into nothing, and then you reshape the patient in the therapist's image. And this is not therapy. This is behaviorist conditioning. You know, this is the way that you break a wild animal to become obedient. This is the way you program compliance and passivity into a person so they will do what you tell them without resistance. And honestly, I don't know why people don't recognize this, that Roquette's techniques are not therapeutic. They are manipulative, brainwashing, mind control techniques. And in fact, he did spook work for the Mexican government interrogating and deprogramming political prisoners, which should give you some insight into where he perfected his methods. Now, in The Dark Side of Psychedelics, I spend some time talking about MKUltra and all of the spook work that went into figuring out brainwashing and mind control. And I may revisit that at some point in these episodes. But the clear distinction I want to make is that Roquette's techniques are not therapy. And for some reason, the psychedelic community can't seem to make the distinction between therapeutic practices and brainwashing, mind control, and cult indoctrination techniques. And this is a problem. Because if psychedelic therapy actually works, if it's actually effective, it should not rely on behaviorist conditioning to break down the subject into an egoless pool of putty that can then be sculpted by a therapist without any resistance from the patient. That's not a therapeutic protocol. That's an authoritarian protocol. That's something that a cult does. That's something that the military does in boot camp to new trainees. That's something that religions do through all kinds of different psychosocial manipulation. So the question becomes, do we want psychedelic therapy to be a brainwashing and mind control exercise? where you force the patient into a new mindset and a new paradigm and a new set of beliefs, as opposed to trying to heal their trauma, which is what psychotherapy purports to do. And so the state of psychedelic therapy is a real mess right now. It is a blend of these cult indoctrination techniques and transpersonal psychology and cognitive behavioral psychology and Buddhism and shamanism, and Hinduism, and a huge mishmash of pseudo-spiritual nonsense and legitimate therapeutic techniques, all fighting for some kind of control over the psychedelic therapy field. And sometimes it's hard to see these distinctions when you are deep in the psychedelic field itself. But any rational observer trained in the field of psychotherapy looking in on the state of psychedelic psychotherapy, will be able to see these distinctions and will be able to see where the power dynamic fails and opens up a huge window for potential abuse. But within the community, there's still this infighting about who's going to control psychedelic therapy. Is it going to be psychotherapists or is it going to be psychiatrists? who traditionally are the only authority allowed to prescribe psych meds. Your standard talk therapist, your psychologist, your psychotherapist, 
not allowed to prescribe psych meds, not allowed to prescribe an antidepressant, not allowed to, dis- to prescribe any sort of psych drug or any drug for that matter, let alone the most powerful psych drugs, which are psychedelics. But the regulations are slowly changing due to public pressure to allow therapists, psychologists, and even trained guides with no official therapy degree to provide psychedelic therapy for people. Which, I agree, looks kind of problematic from the outside. I mean, just looking at it from the inside, I can see it's problematic. And so, there's competing factions here. There are some people, maybe the psychedelic authoritarians, who say all of these practices are fair game. The psychiatrist's couch, the psychologist's couch, the psychedelic guide's couch, the ritual circle at the psychedelic retreat center, the ayahuasca church, the underground psychedelic guide center that was run by Francoise Berzat and Aharon Grossberg, they're all on the same playing field. They are all equally good because they're all helping to mainstream psychedelics. So let's just run with all of them because we're pushing the field forward. And if one of them fails or has problematic actors in that scene, we will just keep it quiet and brush it under the rug and go a different pathway. And honestly, I struggle to find another field where this kind of organic mess is just tolerated and allowed to continue in the chaotic way in which it's continuing. And the regulatory agencies and the advocacy groups pushing for the mainstreaming of psychedelics do not seem to have any clear answers in this issue. The only people providing a really clear answer is the American Psychiatric Association, which has consistently pushed back against the legalization of psychedelics in a therapeutic context because they do not want psychologists and talk therapists prescribing psychedelic drugs. And they do not want barely trained guides prescribing psychedelic drugs because that is the domain of psychiatry. Plus, many psychiatrists have to deal with the fallout of people who abuse psychedelics or ketamine or other drugs. And they're very concerned that if these drugs are more widely used, then there is going to be more fallout and residual psychosis or persistent anxiety disorders created by the misuse of these drugs, which is understandable. Now, even the FDA is a little muddy on this issue because they seem to be leaning towards establishing a paradigm where psychedelics can be prescribed within a course of ongoing therapy, which then puts the power in the hands of psychotherapists. And they seem to be leaning more towards a regimen of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, as opposed to, say, transpersonal models but it is a big unknown how much oversight the FDA will actually have on this once these drugs become approved for use in therapy. Off-label use is going to be allowed in every sort of therapeutic context, including potentially abusive and traumatic contexts like brainwashing techniques. And so far, everybody, everybody appears to be completely silent about what to do about the redress of people who are negatively affected by psychedelic therapy, because you know it will happen. 
People will have traumatic experiences. People will be abused by the power dynamic. And there will be people who come out of psychedelic therapy possibly worse than they were when they went in. And what is their redress? How do those people get justice, for lack of a better word? How do they even get visibility or a voice in a scene which would rather deny that they even exist? Because even in the very, very closely run clinical trials for, say, psilocybin and depression or psilocybin and PTSD, there are extreme adverse reactions. Even when you're doing a clinical trial in a sample size of around 30 people, it's not unusual for a third of those people to have some kind of adverse reaction and for something like 10% of those people to have a serious adverse reaction, such as attempted self-harm, suicidal ideation, or maybe even attempted suicide, which is really mind-blowing when you think about it. Of course, when you're dealing with people who have depression and PTSD and you put them on very powerful psych meds, of course these people may be more prone to suicidal ideation or self-harm. But it also illustrates the very real potential for danger and the very real need to have some kind of safety net or mechanism for treating these people or dealing with these people or at least recognizing that some level of serious adverse reaction is just to be expected. And we can't brush these people under the rug or make them a footnote in the report of our clinical trials. No, we need to look into the future and devise systems for these people, these 10% of people who come out of psychedelic therapy with adverse reactions. Because as a community, as a culture, just throwing up our hands and saying, well, we tried, too bad it didn't work for that person, is not good enough. It makes us look like superior narcissists. And I'm sorry to say that, but sometimes that's the way we look. And please don't get me wrong or misunderstand what I'm saying. It would be just as harmful or reactionary to say, well, if there's 5 to 10% of people who have serious adverse reactions, we need to ban it for everybody, because that's also a form of authoritarianism, which is not helpful. It's not helpful for people. It draws a clear distinction, and it unmuddies the water, but it's not exactly the truth, because the truth is these substances are extremely helpful for some people, maybe even the majority of people. And those people get applauded, and those people are celebrated. And we're happy for those people because they have derived some benefit from these substances and plants that we all love. And that's great and wonderful, and that gives us a warm feeling. And I am 100% on board with all of that. But it's the authoritarian urge to silence the voices of the marginalized and the victims. Because the authoritarian dogma has no room for the voices of those people. So here's where I come in and say, we need to make a distinction between psychedelic religion, which is this belief that psychedelic plants are purely beneficial and can do no harm, and psychedelic science, or psychedelic reality, which says, no, for every set of people who are exposed to these substances, there is going to be 5 to 10% of them who have extreme negative reactions. And we need to know what to do with these people. We need to know how to treat these people and give them remediating therapies 
instead of just shrugging our shoulders and going, I don't know, it didn't work. It made them worse. I'm sorry. Because that's not sustainable, as I said. This is the point where I play devil's advocate with myself and say, okay, James, you're very good at pointing out the problem and making distinctions. So what's your solution? And I'm saying the solution is the community needs to come together and recognize that this is an issue. That's step one. What do we do with the people who are failed by psychedelic therapy? Maybe not due to any fault of the plants or substances themselves. Maybe due to poor protocol design or a bad therapist or a therapist who abuses their power dynamic. We cannot continue to tell these people to take their bad attitudes somewhere else because their bumming are mellow or they're not on board with the vision. These people need to be embraced by the psychedelic community just as much as the people who swear, who become true believers, because that's how you have a healthy, sustainable practice. You cannot grow a scientific discipline with dogma. You need experimentation, results, and clarification. You cannot throw out the results when they don't meet your expectations. You need to Adapt your protocols and your therapies and your designs to meet the actual results as opposed to generating the results that you expect. And agreed, sometimes these issues are confusing because people do not understand the difference between psychedelic religion and psychedelic science. They are conflated together in this push to mainstream psychedelics in all of the talk of miracle cures and sacraments and plant medicines. That's the psychedelic religion. And the psychedelic religion, their dogma doesn't change, regardless of what the clinical trials say. But psychedelic science does not need to follow that paradigm. Psychedelic science can adapt and grow and change and modulate its talking points and modulate its message to meet the reality of the therapeutic context. So that we're not confusing a shaman with a therapist. Or we're not confusing a cult leader with a doctor who's going to heal your trauma. Psychedelic therapy should not be dictated by dogma from the psychedelic religion. Psychedelic therapy should be flexible and it should be able to change styles to fit the needs of the patient. And not blame the patient if they are resistant to treatment or are not responding to treatment. Because that's the reality. And the reality is often very, very different than the dogma. Do we want psychedelics to be a religion like Catholicism that protects the dogma over everything else to the point where we ignore sexual abuse scandals and sweep them under the rug and pretend they didn't exist and just reassign the people who are problematic to different areas so that they don't have to face their victims. I mean, is that what we want? Do we want the psychedelic community to be like the Catholic Church or the Boy Scouts of America that allows rampant sexual abuse to just go unchecked within the community because that's the way the authoritarian dogma tells us it should be? Or because we have an inherent need to protect the dogma, which says psychedelics can do no harm, they only do good. And this is the moral quandary of all authoritarian institutions, where you place the dogma or the ideology over the well-being of the individual. You subjugate the individual to the dogma. 
So this is the essential crux of this prelude, and perhaps this entire season of Dose Nation, which is, in my opinion, it's time to divorce psychedelic science from psychedelic religion. Because the dogma of psychedelic religion, which is inherently authoritarian, is not going to serve psychedelic science in the long run. In fact, it could be a detriment or the downfall of psychedelic science. Because psychedelic science needs to be able to adapt and grow outside of the constraints of dogma and cannot slip into a practice of subjugating every patient to the psychedelic dogma. Because I suspect that pathway will traumatize more people than it actually heals. So as we head into this season, keep this in mind. What is psychedelic therapy actually good for? Versus, what does the psychedelic dogma say psychedelic therapy should be? And we all know what the dogma says. The dogma says that we are going to introduce psychedelics to the mainstream, and we're going to cure everybody of their trauma, and we're going to enter a new era of psycho-spiritual awakening, where the planet will unite as one, and we can drop all of the pretenses of our previous conflicts and live in harmony once and for all. <laughs> right? It's pretty grandiose. The psychedelic religion is very grandiose. And you can hear it from the people running psychedelic advocacy groups. You can even hear it from the billionaire investors who are trying to prop up the psychedelic corporations at the moment. In order to hype the psychedelic science field, People are using the dogma of psychedelic religion to sell the therapy. And I believe that that is misguided. I understand why they're doing it. I also understand that it's perfectly natural to conflate the two. That people do not even understand that there is a distinction between psychedelic science and psychedelic religion. But there is. And it is going to be a growing distinction as we move forward into the mainstreaming of psychedelics. And let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about and why I think it is a bad idea to conflate psychedelic religion or psychedelic dogma with psychedelic science. And I understand that there is a reactionary need to only repeat the positive psychedelic talking points and present psychedelic therapy in the most positive frame. But I feel like there is a danger here. And the danger is that the talking points are quickly approaching propaganda. And from what I can see, the propaganda is not working. You can put up a million social media posts talking about revolutions in mental health and have investors on all of the business shows hyping psychedelic stocks because of the revolutionary potential to find miracle cures for things like PTSD, etc. But I have a feeling that, that the general public can usually discern hype from reality and they can sniff out propaganda. And when you have studies claiming that psychedelics alter metaphysical beliefs, or opinion pieces saying that psychedelics can change people's opinion about climate change, or their political ideologies, and promote a higher level of consciousness or a more unified humanity, I feel that people instinctively understand that this is disingenuous. And it is just as disingenuous as the just-say-no anti-drug propaganda that made the claims that LSD causes chromosome damage and birth defects or makes you crazy after taking it more than seven times, etc. Not only do people instinctively recognize propaganda, they instinctively learn to ignore it. 
And that goes for the pro-psychedelic propaganda as well as the anti-psychedelic propaganda. The more we keep repeating the pro-psychedelic propaganda talking points without being able to deliver any actual results that are as stunning as the hype, people will not only lose interest, they will stop believing you. They will stop believing you when, you when they say that these are new revolutionary treatments or breakthrough treatments. They'll just tune out. Now, separating psychedelic science from psychedelic religion is not going to be easy. And there are just a few examples I can give you from current events which indicate that this could be the case. One of the growing debates in the psychedelic therapy field is, is the mystical experience necessary for the healing or therapeutic properties of psychedelics to work? That is, do people have to trip, quote-unquote trip, or peak to get the benefits of psychedelics? Or can you take a psychedelic with a subthreshold dose or a psychedelic that has been designed to minimize the phenomenal effects. So you essentially have a psychedelic drug with no hallucinations and no mystical experience. And what is that, and what does that even mean? Those are good questions, and there are many companies at the moment racing to patent a non-hallucinogenic psychedelic or a non-psychoactive psychedelic that can be used in therapy. And on the surface, this appears to solve the problem. Because if you can divorce the drug from the mystical effects, then you have a better shot of removing the religion from the experience. But there is resistance to this idea in the psychedelic community that you can have a drug that has the same therapeutic potential as psychedelic hallucinogens without any of the phenomenal effects. Honestly, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And I, I assume the goal is to create a psychoplastogen, a drug that promotes dendrogenesis or neural growth and new synaptic formation or synaptic strengthening without the phenomenal properties of hallucinating. And is, it is unclear in my mind whether you can separate the two. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answer to this question. It seems counterintuitive to me that you could take away the phenomenal properties of the drugs and yet retain some of the physiological responses to the drug. Because one of the things I argue for in psychedelic information theory is that dendrogenesis, or new synaptic growth, or psychoplasticity, is directly related to things like dreaming and hallucination, which is why when we sleep, we dream and build new neural connections, and when we hallucinate, on psychedelics, that promotes dendritic growth and new synaptic connections. So there is, in my mind, a very clear connection between dreaming, hallucination, and new neural growth. And if you have sleep without dreaming, that can cause deficits in memory and memory formation and new memory formation, which is an indication to me that if you take the phenomenal qualities out of the dream, you also take away the synaptic growth that follows those phenomenal qualities. Perhaps the same holds true for psychedelic drugs. If you take away the phenomenal qualities, you also take away the psychoplastogen effects of the drug. The psychoplastogen effects of the drug may be causally linked to the phenomenal effects of the drug. They may be the same thing. And this is something that psychedelic science is going to have to piece apart very carefully. 
and it may be a long time before we get a clear answer on this. And now another recent event was a paper which was published recently in Scientific Reports entitled Psychedelics Alter Metaphysical Beliefs, and Christopher Timmerman is the lead author on that. And I have some problems with this study. I mean, it is a good paper. Uh, Publishing a paper like this is always a difficult task, and getting this paper published is an accomplishment for Christopher Timmerman, so congratulations to him on that accomplishment. But I feel the study itself was biased from the beginning to promote a foregone conclusion, which is psychedelics alter metaphysical beliefs. And why do I say that? Well, this research is based on a survey of psychedelic users, and the way that they recruited participants for this survey was to ask the question, have you had a metaphysical or a mystical experience on psychedelics? If so, come answer our survey or come take our survey. So from the very beginning, you have a selection bias in that people who have previously had mystical experiences on psychedelics are more likely to respond than people who have not. That's just evident. And secondly, uh, when this survey was first published, I took the survey because I was curious to see how it was put together. And I have to say that I backed out of the survey after about maybe a third of the way through it because of the way all of the questions were posed. From what I recall, all of the questions were kind of leading towards the foregone conclusion that psychedelics promote mystical experiences. And even though I have had many mystical type experiences on psychedelics, I have also had other experiences which were not mystical at all, and were of course, you know, more like psychotic episodes or traumatic, anxiety-inducing events, not mystical at all. And the survey didn't really have a whole lot of room for reporting those kind of events. It was specifically looking for mystical-type experiences. So if you have a survey that's specifically asking about only one kind of experience, a positive, mystical-type experience, then of course you're going to get respondents overwhelmingly saying, yes, I've had a mystical-type experience, and those experiences changed my beliefs. Whereas there were no questions posed in the survey which said, have you ever had a negative experience on psychedelics that led you towards atheism? I mean, the counter view just was not there in the survey, at least not in the parts of the survey that I took. So how would you prove the opposite? I mean, it's the survey was weighted to prove one thing which it proved. Now, Christopher Tim, Tim, Christopher Timmerton... Now, Christopher Timmerman is a DMT guy, and I personally believe that DMT guys are biased towards metaphysical beliefs just because of the history of DMT and hyperspace aliens, etc. And that it goes for ayahuasca people, too, and Mother Ayahuasca and the Spirit Helpers, etc. DMT people are generally more mystically inclined than people who are just broadly psychedelic enthusiasts in general. And there's nothing wrong with that. To be honest, people are allowed to think what they want and believe what they want, and that's fine. But when you're doing science, putting your bias up front in the conception of the study is not good science, to be honest. The way that I would have put this study together would be to explore, do psychedelics change beliefs? Do psychedelics change beliefs in general? 
not metaphysical beliefs, not materialistic beliefs, but just beliefs in general. And then ask questions from both sides of the aisle. Have you had metaphysical experiences that led you to metaphysical beliefs? Have you had mundane experiences that led you towards more atheist or mundane beliefs? And then look at the weighting and see how beliefs change from one to the other based on who the person was before their experience and who they were after their experience. And I'm sure in a study like that, you would see, yes, a fair percentage of the people who took psychedelics did come out of them with metaphysical beliefs. But you would also find that there were plenty of people who came out of psychedelics without metaphysical beliefs. And I believe that there is a key distinction here, which is that people who come out of psychedelic experiences with enhanced metaphysical beliefs have often been primed or suggested in advance that that is the type of trip that they are supposed to have. In fact, that is what psychedelics do, is they create metaphysical experiences. So if you're already primed with that belief, and then you have a phenomenal experience on psychedelics, you will parse that experience as more metaphysical than somebody who's just been primed to believe that they're tripping out and melting their face and frying their head off. That person may not necessarily equate all of the phenomenal hallucinations and disorientation with a mystical experience. They just may equate it with being really fucked up, which is a completely fine way to view the experience. It's just not primed to be metaphysical. So in this modern era, it's very difficult to find somebody who's willing to take a psychedelic who already has not been exposed to the fact that there is a metaphys metaphysical bias among people who use them. And that again, is part of the psychedelic dogma. Another interesting counter-study to point out is a paper by Brian Pace and Nishé Devineau, also associated with Symposia, entitled Right-Wing Psychedelia, Case Studies in Cultural Plasticity and Political Pluripotency, published in Frontiers in Psychology uh, late in 2021. And this is a competing psychedelics alter beliefs paper except they're making the case that psychedelics can alter beliefs in many different directions, not just metaphysical, but it can also shape political ideologies, even right-wing ideologies, and point to the somewhat troubling psychedelic pathway to the alt-right pipeline through figures like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan, etc. And it is also a very fascinating paper, probably put together with bias and a foregone conclusion that this is what we're going to demonstrate and we're going to find examples that demonstrate this and we're going to make a case based on our foregone conclusion. Now I find the right-wing psychedelia article a little bit more interesting because it does focus on a segment of psychedelic use that is not widely popularized as opposed to the metaphysical viewpoint which is highly popularized this viewpoint that it can create cultural plasticity and political pluripotency is not discussed ever, anywhere, as far as I know. So introducing these ideas and these observations is important because this stuff is happening in the community. It just doesn't get talked about very much. And instead of having one general paper or general survey, like I suggested, saying, do psychedelics alter belief? How do they alter beliefs? Do they fundamentally alter beliefs toward the left or to the right or to the middle or more naturalistic or materialistic perspective or more metaphysical perspective or more spiritual perspective? 
those questions should remain unanswered until the end of the survey. And the survey should be cast with a wide net, not looking for people who specifically had metaphysical or mystical experiences, or not looking for people who are specifically along that alt-right pipeline, but just everybody, and see where the balance lies, as opposed to creating a different survey or a different study for each foregone conclusion about psychedelics. Then you just get a bunch of competing papers all trying to prove that psychedelics do one thing or another while ignoring the other side. And that's a kind of agenda-driven science. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, it's just an agenda-driven science. And the problem with that is that if you have a metaphysical belief about psychedelics and you see this right-wing psychedelia article, you may, you may have a knee-jerk negative reaction to it. You say, well, that's not my experience with psychedelics. They didn't do that to me. And the same thing on the other side. If you take psychedelics and they turn you into a hardcore materialist, and you see a study that says, psychedelics alter metaphysical beliefs, you go, no, that's not me. You want a study that represents everybody, is what I'm saying. You want a survey that represents everybody and every type of change in belief that happens with psychedelics, as opposed to just catering to one particular viewpoint or illuminating one problematic area, as these two papers do. Again, they're both great papers. They both have some interesting findings, but I would like to see a more inclusive study. I would like to see science be more inclusive and not just look at the foregone conclusions. So that's enough of me talking for one episode. You get the idea. Psychedelic field needs to grow if it's going to survive and move into the mainstream. We can't just push an authoritarian viewpoint of psychedelics or psychedelic religion or psychedelic mysticism on the general public and expect that they're all going to buy into it because everybody's different. There is a certain type of person that will happily buy into the mystical nature of psychedelics and look for a spiritual experience and find some kind of comfort or sense of identity in that experience. But there are other people who could be profoundly uncomfortable with that experience. And not only uncomfortable with that experience, uncomfortable with the type of people promoting that experience. Because honestly, it can seem a little cultish to me. I mean, it can seem a little cultish to anybody. And inside the psychedelic bubble, <laughs> we don't look at each other and say, hey, that looks like a cult. But when you stand outside of the bubble and see how small the bubble is and how everybody is repeating the same talking points, you scratch your head and go, hmm, this kind of looks like a cult. But I will say this, I have been around the scene for over 30 years now, and some things have changed. The messaging around the mystical or spiritual side of psychedelics has now become intertwined with healing trauma. And there's this kind of metaphysical, shamanic idea that trauma can somehow be healed by embracing the mystical or embracing the spiritual. And that's relatively new. Like I said, I've been around for decades, and this is a relatively new talking point. And because of that talking point, a lot of the psychedelic discourse now is about trauma, healing trauma. What's the point of doing psychedelics if you don't have a trauma to heal? I mean, it's become very one-handed in this way. Because that's the going line. That's the going talking point being handed down from on high. And even though I find this point confusing and disingenuous, 
in its simplicity, it is better than what we were dealing with in the past, which was things like the Mayan calendar is predicting the end of the world, and we should all change our calendars to the Mayan calendar because that one is the only true calendar that reflects the natural processes of the universe. Or we all need to be deciphering the I Ching to understand evolution. Or the little spirits will help you find your lost car keys. I mean, there's all kinds of psychedelic garbage, psychedelic nonsense that has been silenced over the last decade. The kooky gurus who are preaching all of this far-out nonsense have been marginalized in favor of this new therapy-based trauma model, which I suppose is an improvement. I mean, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, I would rather people be talking about psychedelics, quote-unquote, magically healing trauma than listening to people talking about spirit elves from a hyperdimension showing you impossible objects. Because, I mean, really, what are you supposed to do with that? I mean, sure, some of us are still sitting around talking about stoned apes, but um, that's the minority these days. And all I can say is, thank goodness. If you've enjoyed this episode of Dose Nation, please like and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify and or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please rate and review the show. That really does help us with our rankings. If you'd like to show your support for Dose Nation, feel free to buy a copy of Psychedelic Information Theory by me, James Kent. Or read one of my ebooks, Radio Free Mars, or the originals on Kindle, available for free with Kindle Unlimited. Thank you for listening to Dose Nation, and we will see you next episode. <laughs>